Hello, and welcome to the Extreme Perspectives podcast. We bring you conversations with people who see things differently and think differently. The creators, outliers, misfits, rebels, and the crazy ones from the Sense Network. I'm your host, Jeremy Brown. I seek out people from the edges of culture, those who are creating the future, people who want to change things and push the human race forward. Together, we collaborate with some of the world's most innovative companies to help them be more innovative. Today, we are speaking with the tricultural mind expander, polymath, physicist, publisher, chess champion, gallerist, and chief organizer of the Mind Sports Olympiad, Itan Eiffeld. Keep listening as we discuss science, maths, games, creativity, zen aesthetics, sleep, juggling, and how new ideas emerge. Hi, Itan. How are you today? Yeah, doing well. Uh, as I've shared, I've got a little bit of a cold, but I, I'm, I'm so excited to be here today that I, you know, I've put that in the back corner and I'm just, I'm here with, with full energy. So, um, well, yeah. Well, we are delighted to have you as a guest on Extreme Perspectives today. I'm sure this is going to be a fascinating conversation. There's so many places that we could go, but it's going to be interesting to see where we do go on this quest to find a little bit more about you. And I'm excited. I got to say, you know, I'm a fan of what you're doing, uh, Jeremy. And uh, I just want to say it's a real privilege to, to be here today. You're, t- you're far too kind. You're far too kind. <laughs> but as I begin every conversation like this, I do like to ask, as you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about, you know, who you are and where you are today, I also like to ask, are you an outlier, rebel, misfit, or a crazy one? Yeah, so I would say all of the above, uh, definitely. Uh, you know, resounding yes. I, um, you know, just thinking about uh, Neo in the in the Matrix, and you know, he's offered, I think it's a blue pill and a red pill, a red pill to kind of see things for what they are. That's when he starts to push back and challenge the status quo. And you know, I definitely want the red pill. I uh, I want to. You know, I don't want to just be brainwashed and and see. You know, just go with. The, the mainstream for me, it's, uh, it's all about looking under the hood and, uh, and creating my own reality. Well, you've done that in a number of different fields as well. You might be uncomfortable, but I think it might be fair to say that you, uh, I, I, I was trying to think what word could I best use to sort of introduce you. And I think you're definitely a mind expander. You know, it's not, the, not just the arts, it's also the science. I don't know if you would, self-identify as a, a, a polymath, but you seem to have lots of interests. Maybe you could just give us a brief introduction of your journey and who you are and a few of the highlights of what you've done just to sort of set the scene. That would be fantastic. Sure. First, I want to say you're way too kind. So thanks for, ah. uh, for those, those, those words. Uh, so I'm Tricultural now, I guess I grew up bicultural, uh, growing up between being born in the States and then growing up in Israel and going back and forth during my childhood between the two countries. And because I studied in Hebrew and in English at various stages, first and second grade, I studied in Hebrew, third to sixth grade in English, and then junior high and high school in Hebrew again, and then university, I, I went to the States and studied in English again. So back and forth. And I think I, uh, I felt more comfortable at first in the sciences because they were not language dependent. So I, ca- I thrived and and physics and math and all that jazz. And 
I was really into that, but, but I was always, always interested in more as well, but definitely that was my, my safe space at first. In my 20s, I became more comfortable with uh, exploring further afield, I guess. I mean, I was always interested, you know, already in, in high school, I, I, I would read like some random philosophy just for the hell of it. Like there wasn't, you know, in school curriculum and all that. So I've always, always been very curious, but uh, I think as a kid, I was way too competitive. I had way too much ego. And so when it came to actually, I guess, competing, I stayed where I felt safe, basically. So hence the sciences. And I, I did double major in math and physics in undergrad. But then afterwards, believe it or not, I, I went and got a degree in uh, critical studies in film at USC. And then I did another master's. So that was a master's and another master's degree at Goldsmiths in interactive media art. And I love that. I love, uh, I love mixing math, science with creativity, text, you know, all that. And I, and I believe, I mean, this goes back to, I guess, the, your first question in terms of being an outlier. I think that it's kind of arbitrary how you see the world, right? Like uh, if you want to understand a space, you usually need to create some sort of grid in order to kind of traverse it, right? And okay, sure, maybe it makes sense to just have straight lines and, you know, I get, the, get, get them to connect somehow, create all these webs that works. But I think actually any grid can work. And I think, you know, whether it's uh, you know, crazy spirals or whatever, whatever metaphor you wanna use, uh, I think you can overlay different ways to explore reality. You can, get, you can understand it just as well. So I guess I've tried to do a little bit of that, you know, move away from too many biases to some extent, because- uh, I couldn't agree with you more. I think the more perspective you can gather, the more divergent those perspectives, actually the, the better the balance you can strike. There's this sort of that diversity almost create some equilibrium. I think it starts to reveal some of the secrets of how things how things work. And I think that's often what the, the pursuit and that curiosity is all about, isn't it? You just sort of have to dig in and go and explore things for yourself. When we first started the Sense Network, I think you, just what you've described, uh, and yet that's that hive mind. It's, and I, I would, like maybe 20 years ago, Google was saying, oh, we're going to put all the world's books online. And I was kind of like, that, that's no good. I, I don't want all the books. I want the people who have read the books so we can cross fertilize those ideas together. We can get in a room and we can start to sort of, sort of really mash these ideas up and see where the familiarities are. And I think the more people that I meet and talk to, you start to realize that there are these patterns in ways of working and problem solving that is almost i won't say universal but there is there are certain sort of just techniques and approaches that people take to get that to get the stimulation but also knowing when to walk away from problems and, and let the subconscious get to work on things as well and Absolutely. in some instances and, and i think those some of the things that are forgotten you can try too hard it's like uh, someone said to me, it's like trying to hit the ball too hard if you're playing sport. Sometimes you sort of miss it or it goes completely wrong. And it's when you're often you're more, more relaxed that those, uh, those moments of insight come. Absolutely. By the way, kind of random association I'll bring in. Uh, at Goldsmiths, one of my, one of my projects, I created uh, an installation. It was called Zen Aesthetic. And the idea was to, to try and encourage people towards non-action as a form of action. And so there was uh, some sort of audiovisual installation that had to do with Tibetan Buddhism. In order to trigger it, when you entered a room, you had to be still and quiet. So you wouldn't actually experience it unless you, you were still and quiet. And then when you did, it would, you know, it would unfold and create this really kind of really cool installation that would turn on. But you know, I like this idea of being, of being Zen. I also like the idea of you know, finding 
random ways to catalyze things, right? To turn things on. And this whole notion of emergence, right? As well, how both uh, on the micro and the macro, you can have kind of very simple things that don't do anything interesting, but then all of a sudden, boom, there's some sort of like big, big bang type of event where complexity starts to, to create. And I'm really fascinated with, with all of that. <laughs> I hope that doesn't sound too cheesy, but yeah, that, that, that's, that's definitely something that I, I've been thinking a lot about. Uh, how do things emerge? How do things create? One other thing I want to mention as well, while, while I'm on a roll, you mentioned the unconscious, which uh, I'm, I'm very interested in as well. I interviewed a few months ago, Julia Cameron, who wrote The Artist's Way, which is a classic book from the 90s. Some people love it, some people hate it, but it's, it's a really cool workbook. And what I find really interesting there is she has this, uh, this ritual called morning pages, where every morning within, I guess like pretty swiftly after you wake up, she'll take pen and paper and write three pages of stream of consciousness writing, basically. And I've been doing that actually. Uh, I love it. And uh, there's this idea, Jungians believe that uh, within the first uh, 45 minutes from when you wake up, you're still kind of discombobulated and your, your, yes. your defense mechanisms aren't on, your ego hasn't fully formed. And so you have access to parts of yourself that you might find harder to access later in the day. So if you can find a way to kind of channel that, that's, that's a, a very important time. So, so I'll try, I'll just, you know, I'll just write uh, you know, three pages of nonsense, whatever comes to my mind from, from dreams that I can remember, which are always hard, right? Dreams, dreams disappear very quickly. And sometimes when you remember an image in a dream, it can lead to other images. It's always, it's always fun to chase that. And then I kind of reorient my day somehow in that way. It's uh, uh, I love it by the way. So I think, you know, finding ways to kind of tune into things that are hard to, to access. That's, that's very interesting. Yeah. Just joining some dots. I think we've, we've kind of come from Sid Arthur, We've uh, come through to <laughs> butterfly wings and chaos. And, and in fact, just what you were talking about with Julia Cameron there, I remember um, there was a lovely documentary made with Maggie Hambling, British artist, who I think does something very similar every morning, just sort of sits down. And I think she does it with her left hand as well. Wow, I think cool. she, so sort of almost taking that consciousness and just yeah. seeing seeing what happens with the left hand as well. So I guess that's just different I've, ways of mixing it up. I've tried, I've tried the left hand, I'm, I'm right-handed and tried that approach and not, not for the morning pages because I, I just don't, <laughs> don't write very well. My handwriting's illegible enough as it is, but uh, yeah, that's, that's also interesting, you know, trying to break biases, definitely. Amazing. So I'd, I'd love just to elaborate a, a little bit more on, I don't want to embarrass you by saying sort of achievements or milestones but I think it would I think it would be great for, for just some listeners to have an appreciation of you had an interest in chess and I think there's some sort of publishing and the books there's a very wide range there covering everything from radical publishing to science fiction and uh, as we've touched on the um, spiritual publisher as well with your with your bookshop and of course, chief organizer of the Mind Sports Olympiad as well. It's very difficult not to just with, with some of the accomplishments you have there. I think, and some of the, and some of the great authors that you've you've published, and the ideas that you're putting out there is just remarkable. So maybe as I've done the awkward bit and named them all, rather than asking you to do it for you, is there a is there a thread that that connects this? I mean, I mean, and I'm I'm guessing there's a, you know, there's a broad spectrum of interest that you have but just that that pathway has it been you just 
taking or being mm -hmm. blown by the wind, for example, or just taking for a walk, or or has there been any any sort of brief that you've set yourself on this journey? Great question. So I should mention, I mean, I grew up in a in a, an interesting household. Uh, my my dad's a, a physician, and and my mom's an astrologer. Uh, so I've been exposed to <laughs> some very different uh, uh, vocations, to to say the least, and. Um, I think the you know the mind body spirit part is very much influenced by by my mom and uh, and Watkins books being the custodian of, of London's oldest uh, esoteric bookshop, which has been in the same location since 1901, uh, is you know I think it's, it's an enormous privilege and something that I uh, I take you know I take very much to heart and it's great to publish uh, a lot of great books with with Watkins. So so Watkins is all about sharing wisdom. Um, and you know, and that and that that thread runs through to repeater books, which I I co-founded with uh, Tariq Goddard, uh, which is very much you know your your rebel kind of countercultural uh, lefty imprint, and uh, it's 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 tremendous, and I'm very proud of what repeater has done. We're actually about to publish our 100th title this July, uh, Melancholia of Class, and uh, I think I think that's that's very exciting. So. Uh, Repeater is all about challenging the status quo. That is uh, <laughs> a bit like Neo in the Matrix to some extent. Uh, it's always poking, poking at the edges. Um, so, but that's also a form of sharing wisdom, right? So, I think uh, I think that that still that thread still runs through through that science fiction. I mean, I love science fiction. It's a great way to explore ideas. I, I grew up reading a lot of sci-fi, you know, from Asimov to Heinlein, to um, a, lot, a lot of the classics. And, and, and I still read uh, a lot of sci-fi. Uh, I really loved uh, just, uh, if anybody reads sci-fi, I loved N.K. Jemisin's uh, Broken Earth series. The fifth season was the first book. And that, that's just a, a tremendous book. Anyone who hasn't read it should read it. I didn't publish it, so <laughs> I'm not pushing anything of my own, but good sci-fi is great. It makes you think. So yeah, that's a bit of a personal, personal interest with regards to the Mind Sports Olympiad. I mean, that's that's very natural for me because uh, I, I grew up uh, playing chess with my dad since I was four. So played a lot of chess, and uh, and I played chess competitively as a kid. That's how I got involved in the Mind Sports Olympiad. I I joined as a as a player playing chess, and and then I, I saw that they had lots of other games, and they were competing in these these weird games I'd never heard of, and that got me really interested in, in this whole notion of cross gaming and learning. It's funny, 2010 was quite a, a pivotal year for me because. That was the year that I, I both bought Watkins Bookshop out of administration and, uh, and took it over. And also the first year that I, I volunteered to run the Mind Sports Olympiad. So I ran, I ran it that year for the first time. I'm gonna be running it for the 12th time, I guess. Uh, yeah, this year. So that's quite exciting. But I, I, love, I love games. I love expanding the mind. I love, uh, Mind Sports Olympiad is very, very close to my heart. I don't know, what else did you mention there? Well, there's maybe one little corner that I didn't mention, but it, is it worth mentioning something about being a gallerist as, as well? <laughs> well, yeah, so I also ran an art space for over a decade, which, which was a great experience. I, I love that. Um, and that was very much influenced by my time at Goldsmiths because I, I hung out with a lot of artists and, and I, really, I was really interested in, in supporting emerging artists and, and providing a space for them. And I mean, that was tremendous. That was, uh, that was great. And Tender Pixel you know, will always play, uh, yeah, always be an important, important phase for me. Uh, but that's what got me actually to take over the bookshop to some extent, because the gallery was right next to the bookshop. So one thing led to another. The tender pixel was a nice way for me at the time to try and 
in, in the vein that you mentioned trying to break boundaries, I tried to find artists that were really, you know, challenging you and, and coming up with crazy ideas. I mean, it was, it was really quite, quite cool. I mean, uh, for an artist that would steal other artists' work, which we had, we had someone, someone do that and some really weird work. I mean, one artist even stole a tattoo, which is a hard thing to steal. What she did was she found, there was, there was a famous artist who, who paid some, uh, some, some women to, to have a line tattooed on their back. And she went and found these women, uh, convinced them to get laser uh, tattoo removal, and then had the same tattoo artist draw that line on her back, thereby <laughs> stealing their tattoo. So again, some, some of the ideas were quite weird, but that was, that was really fun. Tender Pixel was very, very creative. I mean, that was, it was amazing uh, getting to curate some, some cool shows there. Uh, but what I did learn by, by running an art gallery was you know, trying to create something for, for the public domain and, and trying to you know, put things out there. And, and I have to say, I mean, again, that, that was terrific. Uh, but one of the things I love about publishing is I still think that even in this day and age with, you know, there's Netflix, there's a lot of good things out there, but that books are, are very important. I mean, I, I love books. And, and I think they're, they're kind of like, I don't know, maybe, maybe it's a bit strong to say the ultimate democratic uh, form. I don't know if that's, that's true, but they, they're certainly, I mean, they're, 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 great, they're great objects and a great way to share ideas in a, in a well thought out, well developed manner. And you know, if you want to, I guess, have an impact and share wisdom, so to speak, I think books are, are a cool way to do that. Whether it's an audio book or an ebook or whatever, it's still, still, you know, it's still a book. Well, it's structured thoughts. And as you say, a good way to communicate those ideas as well. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. And I think just to join some of the dots, I think if it wasn't for William Gibson and possibly Yoko Ono, <laughs> we might not exist as well. You know, it's, it, it's thinking about how those authors and how conceptual art can actually influence the creation of real world things as well. They are like the early prototypes and, and to quote Gibson, because we use it all the time when he, you know, when he talks about the future is already here, that absolutely is about going to the edges of culture and the outliers and beginning to understand what's motivating them. It's not always obvious, but if you can start to dig into that, and that's really a lot of the, you know, a lot of the work that we do with the, the Sense Network and why we value that diversity and those perspectives so much. And then I think with Yoko Ono, it was, I'm trying to remember, oh, maybe it was a portrait of Mary. I think, and, and it was just talking about how she was making, you know, making these, these conceptual pieces about rights to someone called Mary um, in the telephone book. And, you know, if it wasn't Mary, then had pass it on to somebody else. So yeah. I think all of these ideas about networks, and this was before social networks and really before web two, as it was being called in the early days and those, the possibilities of making these connections um, weren't even there as well. So um, yeah, that's, that's very familiar. I wanna say by the way, for Yoko Ono, I, I love her book, uh, Grapefruit, which is a wonderful collection of you know, both poems and conceptual pieces. Uh, yeah. And she, she is a genius for sure. Yeah, so we mentioned Mind Sports Olympiad. I'm just thinking of anyone listening, just to just to quickly say that I, it, is it still the largest strategy and games event in the world as a as a as a tournament as a competition. So you have a lot of games expos that that are bigger where you could just go and you know play games and learn about games. But an actual tournament, yeah, it's this the world's largest and most competitive uh, board game tournament and. Uh, it's got uh, also a lot of a lot of cool history to it. Uh, it's been taking place annually since 1997, usually in the UK. Um, but uh, because of the pandemic, we had it online for the first time last year, and we have everything from Scrabble and 
chess and backgammon to new Euro games like Catan and Ticket to Ride and, and also some weird uh, exams like speed reading and uh, creative thinking, which we're collaborating with you guys as well. We'll get into that, but uh, it's, it's an amazing competition. What's cool about the Mind Sports Olympiad is it, it tries to encourage you. I mean, anybody can come and compete for a medal at, at, one, at one event, but it also has kind of this incentive to try and get you to try lots of events. We have, we have, a, we have several meta events where one, the, the crown jewel is called the Penta Mind. Penta as in five, mind as in brain. Sounds like pantomime, so it's a bit, bit of a, an odd name, but the pentamind is, uh, is, is awarded to the person who has the five best scores from any of our tournaments uh, with, the, with several constraints, one of which is you can only have one uh, score from the same game. So only one chess result, even though we have lots of chess tournaments and only one you know, Catan result. Or, to win the pentamind, you have to be the best uh, player in the world. And we have amazing people compete for it and we've had amazing people win it. Demis Asabis, uh, the founder and CEO of DeepMind, he won the Pentamine five times. He's currently leading the Pentamine. Uh, and we've got several people now at four wins that are trying to match his record. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's cool. And there, there's just so much there. I mean, it's, a, it's, it's, it's an incredible, incredible event. And I absolutely love running it. It is, it is so, so close to my heart. It is very, very cool. And I think it's just brilliant. The fact that you are bringing so many brains together and very, you know, very different types of brains. Uh, we are, and we are, of course, Sensible Dwyer delighted to be sponsoring the creative thinking. Could you tell us a little bit more? Okay, okay, okay. So, Help so anything, me. anything counts towards, towards the pentamine. We have had in the past uh, a tournament called the Decamentathlon, which is quite, quite a mouthful, but we, but we haven't run the Decamentathlon for a while. The Decamin, so okay, the Decamentathlon is like this ultimate exam where you get tested on 10 grueling subjects, and one of them is creative thinking, uh, but that would be like a sub-event within the Decamentathlon, as opposed to our general creative thinking event, which we still have, which is the, uh, the Creative Thinking World Championship we run every year. That's like a mini creative thinking exam. Bill Hartston, uh, who runs the creative thinking competition, he's been doing it since uh, the very beginning of the Mind Sports Olympiad. And I, I recommend interviewing him sometime because I mean, you want to talk about a, a polymath and a Renaissance man, he probably, probably puts me to shame, I'd say. He was the British uh, chess champion back in the 70s. And he later on studied psychology. He was really into like organizational psychology. And now he writes opera reviews, you know? So he wrote a book about sloths, which he's, he's really fascinated with. So, and he runs, he runs the creative thinking competition every year. He comes up with the questions, which are usually in four, they're usually four questions, four rounds, and you, you get scored on each round. And he grades the responses. And uh, the first few rounds will usually, I mean, everything's quite open-ended. There are no, correct answer, so to speak. He looks for depth and, uh, and creativity. Uh, and, uh, but, uh, but he's got some really great, really great questions. Uh, uh, and people come up with some crazy answers over the years. And then the fourth question is usually something, you usually have some sort of visual stimuli that you need to respond to. Uh, often it will be uh, a schematic of a patent and uh, without like any actual description, you don't know what it is. And they'll say to you, you know, this is, it will be a real patent uh, schematic, but he'll say, what do you think this, uh, this schematic is for? What, what is this device? And explain how it's used, what it does. And it doesn't matter if you got it right, uh, you don't get any bonus points about being creative and come up with crazy ideas for what you're looking at, which is quite cool. But he, I mean, he's had great questions in the past, uh, anything from uh, asking people to you know, reorganize the, uh, the alphabet, 
for example, and make it, I don't know, better, right? Because uh, the chronology of the alphabet that we use, you know, it goes back to like, I guess, Phoenician and Sumerian uh, times, right? Uh, it's quite amazing how, you know, the alphabet, right? Like it's very, it's very similar, even in Hebrew, uh, I was just looking at the other day, uh, I don't know how aware you are, but the, the chronology of the Hebrew alphabet to, to the English alphabet is almost identical all the way till, till the very end, even though there's 22 versus 26 letters, like, you know, we have our last few letters are Kufre Shintaf, which is uh, very similar to QRST. I mean, it just perfectly matches. And obviously everybody knows about, you know, Alpha, Beta, Gamma, Aleph, Bet, Gimma, A, B, C, D, Delta, I mean, they, it's amazing that, you know, so many things map uh, because of some weird skewermorph. I don't know if people are familiar with the word. It, it's, a, it's a cool word. It basically, uh, it is a design feature that is no longer functional, uh, but shows the remnant of a, of a previously functional stage that has been passed on. Uh, so for example, uh, you know, I don't know, like the tiny little pocket that you usually have in your jeans uh, above like your main pocket, that's a skeuomorph that goes back to uh, us having pocket watches. That's where people used to put their pocket watch. Or the sound that you hear when you take a picture that sounds, you know, uh, that little shutter noise, it sounds still like as you're using an old film camera. I mean, that's a skeuomorph. We know, you, know, you don't have to have that particular sound. So there's a lot of skeuomorphs around us, all these old kind of these design features that had a function at some time, they've just been passed on. So yeah, I think uh, the chronology of our alphabet is in many ways uh, <laughs> a skeuomorph. The only thing I can add to this fascinating part of the conversation is I, I disappeared down a wormhole into uh, the, the world of the ampersand. And that used to be a part of the alphabet because mm -hmm. I was complaining bitterly about the use of it and um, <laughs> and so I felt I had to do some research because so I think it was being overused. Um, and so I wanted to put it back in its place where it should be. Where, where was it in the alphabet in terms of the chronology, do you know? It was, it, it was, um, it, so it was at, toward, towards the end. So you had, to, and Z, you had right at the end there. Oh, so before the Z, it was right before the Z. I think, I think that was correct. You're going to catch Z. me out here. We might have to edit this <laughs> so I can. Well, I was, I was looking at a rug the other day that was uh, created by uh, Alan Fletcher. I don't know if you, Alan Fletcher, was um, one of the original partners at Pentagram Design. So he was very much known for his torn paper uh, techniques. And he made this rug, this alphabet rug, but it was on a grid, obviously, of, of five by five, 25. And he couldn't, he obviously couldn't get the 26 letter in. But then you, you realize that the, if he, if he, changed all the letters around, the N and the Z would um, serve both purposes. So that's how he fitted all 26 letters onto a 25 grid, which I thought was, uh, I thought that was some, that was some smart thinking. Yeah, it's true. The N and the Z yeah. uh, does work. I mean, I guess you could also save on the W and the M if you wanted as well. There's a lot. Yeah. So one of the things with all this game playing and people playing games, we, we touched on this, I think, when we, we first connected, but why do people play games and cheat? That's a great question, by the way. I love, love that you asked that. <clears throat> and we did have, by the way, a few cheating uh, incidents. Uh, not to say that there aren't cheating incidents in real life, it's just much harder to do so. But uh, last year we had, uh, in our Othello competition, we had somebody who was completely unknown beat a former world champion. And not to say that's not possible, but we analyzed the games, the moves, and ran it, compared it to an AI engine and artificial intelligence. And, 
and saw that you know he was just using basically AI to play because it matched perfectly. But um, why does someone do that? That that's a tough question to some extent. I think it's interesting. Uh, people like to win, and I guess even when they're cheating, maybe somehow they still feel like they deserve it to some extent. I mean, I've heard it's 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 interesting. I've heard I think someone was saying that they they did some sort of trivia, some some I don't know, some pub quiz or something, and uh, they were asked to identify was it like all seven dwarves or something uh, in Snow White and they could only remember six and they were sure of the six but they couldn't remember seventh and it was all or nothing if you didn't know all the names you, you'd get zero points so they googled it you know and they're like well you know is that cheating you know they're almost there but of course it is right so there's I think the point is there's a spectrum to cheating to some extent right uh, even if you're using an AI engine you could be <laughs> playing some moves on your own and then using the AI why do people cheat I mean that that's that's a very very open-ended question but, but the point is the point is that yeah people do and um, when we run serious tournaments we try and find ways to minimize that and identify it and, and, and maintain the integrity of, of our events I mean we run over a dozen world championships and it's quite hard to, to try and, and do that when you're running events online yeah well particularly online and we're it's going to be online again this year so, so I'm, I'm very excited about that I, I will say it's interesting that for chess which is one of the most popular games out there I mean, they've actually, their technology has developed quite, quite well. Uh, so it's, it's, it's easy to identify cheating easier for f fast time controls. As you can see, humans play very differently to, to computers when, when they're under pressure. Uh, all the top chess sites like LeeChess, Chess.com, they analyze the games. They've got AIs that scan all the games that are played trying to look for cheating. And I know that on, on LeeChess, there are like, I think there's around like 30,000 people a month that are being banned every month. So, so it's, pretty, it's pretty crazy how much wow. cheating takes place, yeah. But it's cool that they've got the technology to do that. And, and that's something that's fascinating me actually is using artificial intelligence to both catch cheaters, uh, but also to train people because AI can also teach you and you know, find your mistakes, tell you how to get better. And, and, and I'm actually, I'm happy to share, I'm actually developing right now a new platform for two-player strategy games that's going to be AI powered to do both of those things, to train people to become better players, but also to catch cheating. And so we'll be adding lots of different games there, but, uh, but we're going to have already this, this August, all of our chess events are going to run on our, on our site and our Chinese chess, Japanese chess uh, drafts uh, known as checkers in the States, and also a new game, well, a newer game called Lines of Action that perhaps not that many people have heard of, but it's, it's a great game. So definitely, you know, we're very interested in, uh, in yeah, in using AI to, to create a, to, to solve a lot of these problems. <laughs> so at what point on the, on, on the, the training and, and reaching a point of competency and then, you know, it's like using the force, isn't it? Back to science fiction, we're sort of, at, at what point does it turn bad? You know, where's the, where's, where's the best zone for actually playing? Is it about fun or is it about the competition? You know, thinking about what, you know, at what point are people trained? Is that when they become competent? And at what point does it sort of become, become cheating? Oh, in terms of you even using the AI? Ah, well, no, so yeah. you, can, you can use the AI to train while you're not playing a real game. That's fine. So you can use the AI, for example, to, it can send you a report to analyze your game and tell you where you made mistakes, where you missed opportunities or, you can use it to run through, or you can play against an AI, for example. Yeah. But definitely, it's cheating. I'm. Uh, we take very seriously. And get back to that dwarf question. It is cheating for sure to to Google the se <laughs> the seventh name. So you know we don't want any cheating. What does what does it all mean to some extent? You know, I guess you're asking. 
uh, and what point is it too much? Um, I mean, it, it's very interesting. So a lot of games don't really have a, a very strong AI yet engine. So that's something that we're trying to solve because if you want to get better at a game, you need a good coach and having an AI is something that will help you do that. So I think that it is important to have an AI that's much stronger than any human, which we now have in chess and in Go and, and a lot of games. And I think, I think that's good. But of course, again, it goes back to once you have that, then it can be used. It's a double-edged sword. It can be used in a bad way. With regards to playing, why, why do people play? What, what do they do? And not necessarily just about cheating. There are a lot of weird reasons that people like to play games, right? To some extent, it's about self-expression. It's also about being creative because it's, a, you know, games are a dance of sorts. You get to dance with, with someone. It also approaches some of our basic instincts to some extent. So for example, games like chess have been compared to hunting games. You know, primitive man had to go out and hunt and, and in chess, you're hunting the king. So something, something kind of appealing there and you, you don't get to hunt in real life that often. So that, that, that's very interesting. And there, and there are certain games where we try and accumulate something, grow something that goes back also to our need to, I guess, accumulate, grow and you know, build. So there are a lot of games where you're building and, and, and developing and good games appeal to some of our basic instincts while allowing us to, to express ourselves and be creative. I think that, that's usually a very good thing as long as you, know, you don't get carried away. As, as with anything, it can turn bad, right? Uh, yeah. um, you, can, you, can, you can become addicted. Chess, for example, is a very competitive game online these days it's quite popular to to take on these very fast games you'd be surprised how quickly people play online often some games you'll have two minutes for each side so the game will be over in less than four minutes let's say and some people play even faster time controls it's great to play you're creative you're enjoying that but i think sometimes people get very frustrated when they lose and they never want to end on a loss so they'll keep playing and then if they're winning Sometimes you want to keep winning because it feels so good. So you can sometimes ride these emotions. And then next thing you know, <laughs> you've burned through way too much time because you don't know when to stop. You know, you don't want to stop on a win, but you don't want to stop on a loss. So when do you stop? When do you get off the train? So I think, you know, it's, it's very important also when you, you play to also be aware and, you know, stay, stay healthy, I guess, to some extent. That's a very good point. It's about healthy and, and well, bringing it back to another human thing and being able to find all our fac faculties functioning in the right way and, uh, and, and having that balance. Um, and, and maybe on that point, just to sort of change the conversation, I'm just intrigued, a bit more of a personal question, if you don't mind. With so many interests and you talk about your gaming, how do you manage all of your different interests? Uh, do you, I mean, do you have downtime or are different interests downtime to you? Great, great question. By the way, before I answer that, I just want to say another book, uh, that I think is great uh, is Steven Zweig's uh, Chess, if anyone hasn't read it, which is a great book about kind of the, the obsession uh, uh, behind uh, competitive play. And I think, I think that's, that's, that's a, a classic book. Um, but going back to time and interests and relaxing, I think to a large extent, one of my flaws is that, uh, well, I think that I know how to relax to some extent, but I don't do enough of it, so to speak. Uh, and obviously, if you work at something that you love, then you love what you're doing. You're not necessarily working. And I think to some extent, I do do that. So I get to work on things that I'm very passionate about and I love for sure. So, so I do that. In terms, of, in terms of the passion, I've got that uh, in spades. In terms of relaxing, 
I probably could do a better job, I think, of <laughs> maintaining a bit more balance because I am often trying to you know, continually, continuously do things and find new interesting things. And to some extent, there's, there's two answers there, right? If you can find a way to relax within what you do, that's great. That's not so simple. But if you can, if you can do that, that, that's awesome. And I'm trying to do a bit more of that. It's hard to relax when you're playing competitive chess, even though, by the way, that's something that sometimes I will do if I want to just, if I have free time, <laughs> I'll jump on and then play some, some, some speed, uh, some blitz games. I don't know, last night, for example, I picked ahead about half a dozen books that we've got coming out in the next few months. And, and, and again, I, I'd read a bit of them before, but I was just going through them and reading them, looking at the final, the final outcome and, and enjoying that. And, and that was relaxing actually. So I was working and relaxing. So, so it is possible. Yeah. To, yeah. to do that. And there's some great books that I'm very excited about, but, but I definitely think that uh, relaxing is very important. Sleep, which is the ultimate relaxation, is something that I've always prioritized. And, uh, and I think that you know, that is so important to, to creativity, to longevity, to, to everything. So I, I always make sure to get at least like eight, eight and a half hours of sleep every night, no matter what. That, that was going to be my next question. Yeah, because you know, I mean, yeah. at the end of the day, you could have more time if you slept less, but then A, you would enjoy it, and B, I don't think you'd be as productive. I think you're, you're just a lot more productive when, you're, when you've taken care of yourself. Well, and who knows what other functions are really taking place on the, on the, with the processing um, and some of that insight learning that can, can pop out and channel out in different ways. For I think sure. that's exactly it. I think that's where we started is sort of saying, you know, when do you, when do you down tools and take a walk? And there are plenty of examples of those eureka moments coming when people have sort of put the tools down and had a drink or taken a walk or done some exercise or, or whatever that other distraction might be and sort of activating different parts of the brain. Absolutely. And I think physical activity is super important. So I'm always trying to learn new things. I learned how to juggle a couple of years ago and I've been trying, trying to always learn kind of new, new, new things. So I can't play uh, musical instruments very well, but I'll I'll try occasionally to to you know to pick up a, a different instrument and just just do that. So yeah, I think continually pushing yourself is important. And also in terms of eure eureka moments, I mean I'll I'll keep a notepad by my bed. So if anything comes to my mind in the middle of the night, I write it down. So I think I think that is very important. You know, downtime is is important. And also I think that to in order to to produce, you have to consume as well. So it's important to replenish yourself and find, you know, whether it's good books or I don't know, or art or whatever, you have to, you know, you have to take things in, right, in order to be able to synthesize them. So we've, we've covered books and, and art. How, how about music? Does that, does that feature much in your world? <laughs> I love music, but I think I'm, I'm pretty much tone deaf, I think, to some extent. So it's hard for me to be a very good uh, singer or a musician. But, uh, but I will say, actually, uh, my, my daughter and I, we, we actually developed a song. We came up with the lyrics and the tune together. And I gave the song to a singer-songwriter friend of mine, Daisy Shute, and she made it into a real thing. So I have a song now on Spotify uh, called Chloe the Unicorn. So if anybody wants to listen to Chloe the Unicorn, buy Chloe the Unicorn, because that was the, the artist name we gave to it. There is a song on Spotify. Yeah, I'm quite, quite proud of that. And, and what's cool is Chloe is also credited as uh, uh, at PRS as... as as, as an author. So it's quite fun that actually my daughter has, has a proper song uh, and she's only four years old. So that, that's very exciting. Amazing. Well, that's listen to the so song. Good. I don't know if you have to say it's amazing yet. Listen to the song, but it's a decent song. 
<laughs> just just another facet there for um, that, um, that that came in from left field. Great, a tune on Spotify for us. There's going to be lots of links at the bottom of this podcast. Excellent, amphitheaters and unicorns today. Um, <laughs> fantastic. I think we've covered an awful lot of ground. We haven't got a date fixed yet, have we? For oh, we do actually. We do. We oh, do. we do. Well, it's provisional, but I think it's I think it's going to I'm pretty sure that's going to be the date. So August 19th is going to be the day for the Creative Thinking World Championship. It will it will start, I believe, at 730 UK time. And it's going to be open for 24 hours to for people to submit their their answers. And we'll, we'll publish the questions, probably four questions at that point. And it shouldn't really take people longer than a couple of hours to submit their answers. You don't need 24 hours. The reason we're leaving it open for 24 hours as opposed to most of our other events is that we want it to be uh, accessible to people all over the world, regardless of time zone, basically. Yeah. So, and it's, a, it's one of those things and it's a, you know, there's no, there's no major time limit here. So yeah. So we're very excited to have the creative thinking world championship online this year. And we had some, some weird questions last year. I think one of them involved the Chronicles of Narnia <laughs> and reinterpreting that. Uh, but anyway, you don't have to, no, you you know you, you can interpret things in any way. So no one has to come with any prerequisite knowledge, basically. So yeah, it's amazing. It's a cool event. Well, we will be sharing more information with the network. And how many? Just out of interest, I, I mean, typically, how many people do you have entering that competition? So the creative thinking competition specifically. Yeah, yeah. I need to check, uh, but I think last year was maybe around like seventy or eighty. I'm not sure. I need to check, but uh, yeah, maybe 70, um, which is you know, a very, very nice turnout, very competitive crowd. Um, I and imagine. just a fun competition as well. Uh, very unique. I mean, it's cool that we can run things that you can't find anywhere else. I mean, there is no such competition anywhere else. And okay. We also run a speed reading competition, which uh, uh, people might find interesting as well. And again, it's very hard to find a place to have to, to participate in a speed reading competition. Speed reading, by the way, I'll explain is it's a pretty, pretty straightforward exercise. We will, uh, being a publisher, I have access to books before they come out. So we choose a, a work of fiction usually. Uh, we send that out to all the competitors. And then as soon as they, they claim to have finished reading it, so to speak, they email us. And then we email them with questions and they have a time limit to answer those questions, a very short amount of time. And then what we do is we take their percentage of their comprehension percentage, which is how they did on the, the comprehension exam, and multiply that times their uh, the the speed at which they read the book, because you can do words per minute times comprehension, and that is a comprehended word per minute score. So whoever has the the best comprehension uh, or certain speed will will win that, and that that's also a really cool competition. And by the way, this year and just like last year, we're going to make all of our events free, so everything is completely free to join. Yeah, that's pretty cool because. Traditionally, whenever we have it as a physical event, we've always had entry fees, but we've wanted, especially during the pandemic, you know, we want to enrich people's lives and make things accessible. So uh, very proud to, to have all of our events free this year. I know that that is that is amazing. And I will um, I, I will be in the queue this year as well. Yeah. <laughs>
that's going to be um but i think you you touched on it very briefly and i wasn't going to mention it but i did think uh some of your scoring mechanisms were in inspired on how you calculate some of the scores and you you just touched on it there with uh with the speed reading but if um any anyone listening uh wants to go and dive deeper i think that's uh i think i think it's really uh, very cool on uh, how how you figured some of that out for the so olympiad there's been there's been you know, a lot of tweaks over the years and there is a caveat for, for speed reading there. You have to actually pass a threshold on a comprehension test to show that you've actually read the book. So, you know, people have tried to hack the system in the past where, you know, they could say within a few minutes, they could reply back and say, I'm done and have this incredible speed. And then as long as they can get, I guess, one question right or something that it could still be <laughs> a pretty good comprehended word per, per minute uh, score. So we, we've put thresholds and we fixed our formulas and I think they're, they're quite uh, robust, I would say. Well, I hope we're going to have uh, a number of people from the Sense Network as well. So I always come to my 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 last question, and this is the one where we sort of cast our thoughts out to, you know, we often talk about with the Sense Network to make things better and to make better things. And if there was one thing that you would like to say change about the world or make things better, or make better things, what might that be? Wow. Great question. Well, first of all, I mean, I think that to some extent, everything that I do is trying to make the, the world better and I'm trying to make better things all the time, right? That, that's kind of kind of what I do. And this, this new platform that I'm developing, that we'll be using this August, it will be great in terms of uh, providing a solution to what I think is a real problem for, for two-player strategy games online. What can the Sense Network do? Well, first of all, come and participate in the Mind Sports Olympiad. If there's something that you'd like, volunteer. We've all, we always have room for volunteers. And we've got great volunteers at the Mind Sports Olympiad. There's a lot to organize. I mean, a lot of our events we we coordinate through our Discord channel. That's kind of like Slack for gamers. And you know, there's there's so much to do, so many moving parts. Yeah, that's what I would say. Come come get involved, come play, see, see what you like and, and reach out. Awesome. Well, we will put the word out and it's gonna be fantastic that we're gonna be able to get this podcast out there too to just raise the awareness and, and hopefully get more people stepping up and taking part or, or volunteering as well. I'm sure there'll be, well, we'll, we'll certainly be on hand to, to help out here. The team is sent worldwide, but that is a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much, Etan. We Thank have you. covered covered a lot of ground. I feel that we could have probably gone on for another two hours, but I've had to had to stop myself. And thank Amazing. you, thank you for thank you for just to, for the great conversation. You certainly brought out some some great stuff. So I, I really yeah, really enjoyed it. Brilliant. Well, thank you again, and uh, look forward to the next time we get to speak. This brings us to the end of another mind expanding conversation. Think about what you've heard. Have you taken the blue pill or red pill? Do you see things for what they are? Would you like to compete in the Mind Sports Olympiad? If so, please join the conversation with us at the Sense Network. This knowledge deserves to be out there. Thank you for listening to the Extreme Perspectives from the Sense Network. Remember to follow and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We will be back soon with another extreme, non-mainstream, possibly uncomfortable conversation from the edge of culture. We'd love to know what you think, so please leave us a comment. If you enjoyed it, share it with your friends. In the meantime, you can follow us on Instagram at The Sense Network. And if you're a creator, outlier, misfit, rebel, or a crazy one, 
and want to collaborate with us, join the Sense Network, linked in the description. We look forward to the next time.